I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, an investment advisory practice. I've been an advisor for nearly 30 years, and one of the questions I get asked most frequently is, do I have enough money relative to other people my age? And while that's an interesting question, it's also the wrong question. The right question is, is do you have enough money to sustain your lifestyle for the rest of your life? This is a question you should know the answer to. This is what we do. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our Big Proud American Eagle logo. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and this is Global Conversations in Plain Sight. We have our dear friend and colleague, Leslie Manukian, who is the founder and president of uh, Health Freedom Network. Is it Network? Do I call it Network? Defense Fund. Health Freedom Defense, Defense Fund. Defense Fund. I'm sorry, Leslie. I just had a, That's okay. a brain moment there. All right. So um, let's back up, okay? You got into this movement, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. And you had been on Wall Street. You had you have your MBA. You worked at Goldman Sachs in New York, and in London, you worked for another uh, Alliance Financial. Uh, it was it was a financial group called Alliance. And Alliance then Capital. Alliance Capital. All right. So you you were at the top of your game, you know, f for being in the finance world. And then you decided to leave to make a difference in your life. Let's let's go back to the beginning and why you made that transition. Okay, you froze. Hopefully it won't be a problem, but I think you said you want to go back to why I left Wall Street. Yeah, and made the transition and made okay. the transition. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I had a, I mean, I feel like um, I've been very, very fortunate in my life. I've had a tremendous number of opportunities and doors opened to me for whatever reason, I think most of it I attribute to God, essentially, Christine. Um, you know, I was fortunate to be accepted to the University of Chicago and get an MBA. And then I was fortunate to get a job at Goldman Sachs and work there and do very, very well. And while I was working in New York, um, I was asked if I would move to London to go and cover the big complicated accounts in the London office for Goldman Sachs. And I did that for a couple of years. And frankly, I just got disillusioned. You know, there are certain aspects of a um, investment bank that lead to conflicts of interest. They're inherent in the structure of it. And I didn't like it. And so I ultimately just said, this isn't for me, I'm going to quit. And maybe it'll be cleaner. There'll be fewer complications or conflicts of interest on the buy side as an investment manager. So I ended up going to one of my biggest clients, a company called Alliance Capital Management, which at the time was the largest publicly traded asset management firm in the world. And I um, started out as a telecom and technology analyst and was promoted in less than a year to director of research and then to director of European growth portfolio management and research. So that was Big my job. Big jobs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was a director. It's yeah. I was, 
managing a lot of people and I was responsible for all of our European portfolios and, um, or I should say I was responsible for choosing what went into most of our European portfolios, our international portfolios and our global portfolios. And what that means is that I and um, some other portfolio managers who worked with me and all the analysts who worked for me, we would interview the management teams of these companies. And so what happened once, which is, this is the biggest catalyst for me leaving Wall Street was that the CEO of one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world came into our offices. And they came to see us because we were big investors. We owned probably a billion dollars of the stock at the time. And the stock was getting crushed because rumors were trickling out that their new product in phase three trials, which is the phase right before you get licensure from FDA, before mm -hmm. it goes to market, rumors were leaking out that the drug that was supposed to help your heart was killing people. So the CEO, the CFO, chief financial officer, the head of R&D and the um, director of investor relations came into our offices to reassure us. And so there's all of us sitting there. There's a phone line to New York with portfolio managers there as well. And um, the CEO looked me in the face and said, listen, in very, very rare instances, you know, some people have died on the clinical trial. The bad news is the FDA is going to make us put a black box warning on the packaging. The good news is we still think we can do 7 billion in peak sales. I was just absolutely gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. I felt like someone had kicked me in the gut because I'd never heard someone be that kind of brazen in their assessment of the <laughs> trade-off between corporate profit and human life. And I just thought to myself, oh my gosh, they're going to kill people and they know it. Like, this is just crazy. So I really had a crisis. Um, I went to my office. I paced back and forth. After that, I walked down the hallway to our pharmaceutical analyst's office and I flung the door open and I was like, you know, I'll just call her Jane. Jane, you know, this is wrong. And she looked at me like, yeah, lady, what do you want me to do about it? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I just felt this is, this is outrageous. And I just thought, you know what? I am playing for the wrong team. I am using all of my skills, all of my education and all my talent for the wrong team. And I started planning my exit and I don't remember what year that was exactly. It was somewhere around 99 or 2000 or 2001. I could go back and figure it out, I'm sure. But um, I just decided that I was going to get out. And um, I ended up hiring someone to replace me and sort of planning my exit. And I finally quit after my son was born. Um, I finally was um, resigned or retired from finance in uh, 2003. And I just decided that, you know, I'm going to commit the rest of my life because I've been very, very fortunate to actually making a difference on the planet, doing all I can to help further people in their ability to make healthy healthcare choices for themselves. I actually became a qualified homeopath. I did all these different things. And um, it's because I'm passionate about helping people and because I healed myself through these holistic, um, uh, you know, the word is spacing on me, but, you know, through ho holistic modalities, essentially. So that was really my path to getting out of Wall Street and committing myself to making a difference on the planet. And then I learned about homeopathy and I learned about the vaccine debate. And then, you know, that just launched me in a new direction. And you also produced a documentary. Yeah. So um, vaccinations and to write, to raise the conversations so that, because 
you know, 15 years ago, the people who were injured knew about it because of their families or they knew somebody of, but it's not like it, it, the conversation is today. So you were ahead of the game. How long were you in finance, Leslie? Um, 11 or 12 years. So I worked, um, I started in finance in 92 and I left in 2003. So I don't know, you'd have to calculate it exactly 11 or 12 years, somewhere in there. 12 years or so. Okay. Yeah. So, so you yeah. took a big leap and it was a leap of faith. You came back to the States and you started the defense fund. Did you do it right away? No, basically what happened is I was living in London and I was having all these health problems and I didn't know why. And I kept going to the doctor to just the main street doctor, mainstream doctors. And finally, my doctor, after running all these tests on me, he said, you should go and see a homeopath or a chiropractor or no, an acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like, okay, now homeopathy is really popular in um, Britain and it's really popular all across Europe and in lots of other countries. It's not nearly as smeared and derided as it is in the United States. Um, yeah, there are big homeopathic hospitals in Britain still. And I mean, 300 million people in India use homeopathy. That's their primary. So, and, and, and we need more of it here in the United States because everybody, we have 75% of the population who take prescription drugs as opposed to looking at the alternatives so they don't have to take drugs for the rest of their life. Yeah. And what they don't realize is that they're actually being misled by the pharmaceutical industry and the medical complex. They are told that all of these other healing modalities that are far older than drug-based medicine are somehow quackery when they are proven over hundreds, if not thousands of years. And the truth is those other healing modalities are actually health promoting, whereas drugs they don't promote anything. They suppress symptoms. That's all they do. Right. Right. They're and not they have to break down your immune system if you take them for so long, because in some people, if you take a certain drug, I know I have a friend who's on a uh, thyroid drug and she's been on it for years. And if she gets off of it, then she's, it, <laughs> her thyroid's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas homeopathy might be able to support her home, her thyroid there. The point is that these holistic healing modalities actually help boost your immune system, boost your health, support your organs, whereas drugs just suppress systems and create other complications and problems. You know, most people, I don't, I didn't know that that was the number 75%. I knew it was over 50% of Americans take some kind of a pharmaceutical product, but what happens is they take that first product and then they experience side effects. And then they're prescribed a new product for the side effects rather than recognizing that the side effects are worse than what the first condition was and that the condition could be healed through homeopathy, through nutrition, through exercise, through lifestyle, through herbs and supplements, right? And so this is my passion. This is my passion is so to this try. Is, and, this yeah. is the path you did. So you took your talents and you were at the top of your game in finance and you open, opened up this, this defense fund. And well, can I tell you first about the, because the reason I was telling you about homeopathy is because that's how I even learned about the vaccine debate. So ah. I go and see a homeopath and, and I was just blown away at how profound just the first hour and a half session was. I couldn't believe it. It was so profound that I enrolled in homeopathy college in secret in London <laughs> while wow. I was still a director. Okay. Wow. okay. And I started, and the very, very first day in homeopathy college in orientation, the person leading it said, over the next three years, we're going to learn about all these different issues. We're going to learn about the mind-body connection. We're going to learn about nutrition. We're going to learn about vaccine damage. And I was like, um, excuse me, vaccines are the greatest invention of mankind. What are you talking about? And he sort of smirked and laughed. And, you know, he's like, mm, well, that's one perspective, but we're going to learn another. And I literally thought to myself, 
What a nut job. This guy is crazy. I mean, are you serious? Vaccines are the greatest thing ever. Because I had never understood that there might be a downside to them. Um, and then after the class, I went out into the hallway and there was like a book store laid out on a folding table. And he's like, here, read this book. And so I read this book. It was called Vaccines. Are they really safe and effective? And I was shocked by the book. I started reading it and I'm like, this can't be true. And I, I go to the back because I'm an analyst geek by nature. Mm -hmm. Over 960 footnotes to the medical literature, mainstream newspapers and things going back a century, documenting rheumatoid arthritis, seizures, death, um, cancer, and all these other issues relating to vaccinations. So I was literally, I was absolutely, it was, you know, my worldview was destroyed. I took that book and the next weekend I went to the home homeopathy college president book in hand and started yelling at her. How can this be true? <laughs> and she sort of shrugged her shoulders and was like, uh, sorry to burst your little bubble sister, but you know, money power, I, you know, I don't know. And I was just blown away. But in that moment, I literally felt called that one day I would make um, I would do the research for myself and find out if what was in that book was true. And I would make a documentary on the film on, on the, um, the whole vaccine issue. And so that's what I did for the next roughly 10 years. I researched vaccinations. And then in 2011, um, our award-winning documentary on vaccines called the greater good was released and you can see it at greatergoodmovie.org. And so that was just life-changing for me because I started digging deep. And I had that in the back of my head. Like, I remember the CEO telling me that he was going to injure and kill people, but would it would be okay because um, he'd still do $7 billion in sales. And I was thinking to myself, maybe there is some truth to this. And, and this is horrific to even contemplate, but Maybe they are actually sacrificing our most innocent, our babies and our children. And so it kind of really seriously opened my eyes. And then making the movie, you know, it went everywhere. It got, it's, I mean, we don't know how many people have viewed it, but we think it's somewhere around 20 million people. It's been viewed in countries all over the world. It's been, it's all over the place. We won actually an award from the School of Public Health at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And um, for our treatment of an important public health topic and what ended up happening was it sort of catapulted me into the whole health freedom arena and doing all the research made me so much more aware of how these federal health agencies charged with protecting us are actually beholden to the industry that they're supposed to be regulating. And so it woke me up. And when 2020 unfolded, um, I knew exactly what was happening. And the reason I knew was because that you could it, see the roadmap. You, you I could understood see it. it. I knew it. And because if you've been really deep into vaccines, number one, you can also, once you're in deep in any subject, you can see how the masses are manipulated. Mm -hmm. You can just see that. But right. the other thing is I then understood all the different pieces of legislation they had put in place over the last 20 to 40 years in order to facilitate the crisis of 2020, the, the COVID crisis and the reaction to it. Because it was, I think it was very well planned out. I mean, there were a lot of different things that were changed in the last 20 years that facilitated it. And it, and it came together like the perfect storm for yeah. to, to accelerate it with the public, not just in the United States, but globally at the yeah. time. Yeah. I mean, think about this, Christine. In 2019, both New York and California removed religious exemptions to vaccinations for children. Both I of think, them. I think that was 2015, wasn't it? 
19. And they but, both- that's how California was 15 and, and New York was 19. Well, in California, they've been attacking vaccine exemption since 2010-ish. Okay. They started really going after them first. They took away um, the ability for parents. They actually legalized children as young as 12 taking vaccinations for sexually transmitted diseases such as hepatitis B and um, HPV, the Gardasil shot, for children as young as 12 without parental consent or knowledge. Parents can't know about it. Right. The medical records are sealed to them. But it was a long, long slippery slope of over of roughly 10 years until they got to the point where they actually removed the religious exemption in 2019. And they did it in New York too. And the and most- they did it in Maine and they did it in Connecticut in spring of 2021. Yep. They tried New Jersey, but they failed in New Jersey. Yeah, or they done being anyways. Totally. And the thing that's most sort of jarring to me is that both California and New York legislatures suspended their own rules to ram those new laws through. That really speaks volumes. They literally suspended their rules. They bypassed the normal protocols and rules in order to jam that stuff through. Why? And, and I always say when something like that happens, it's head stamping because it's out of the norm and people should be asking who got paid. I say that as a investigative journalists all the time. How much money does somebody get paid to do something like this? You know, when they shut down the churches in 2020, but they opened them up to have events so they could administer vaccinations. I said, okay, how much is that minister? How much is that parish being paid to do something like that? And it came out of the, whether it's $4 trillion or $8 trillion, whatever the, 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 the CARES, the Rescue CARES Act was in terms of expending money, it's everybody got paid to do this. And it's sad. I mean, from the hospitals, all the way down to the you know American Pediatric Association, they got reimbursements. The hospitals got reimbursements. The churches got reimbursements. Everybody was on the take, and they're on the take with taxpayer money. Yeah, they and I would say they didn't even get reimbursements. They actually got incentives, right? That's true. Fact, That's true. There was a study that just came out that showed that hospital um, profit margins actually doubled to the highest level they have ever been during COVID. It was a financial boom for the hospitals. Oh, it was a go. It was an absolute gold rush. Yeah. So let's pivot into, because let, let's, when you decided, I want to get into the current wins for you with Nike and, you know, the mask and everything like that, but in, during COVID, but let's, when did you start the fund and the purpose of the fund and how is, how, how is it managed in terms of administration? Yeah. So basically in, um, at the end of 2019, I was introduced to some amazing lawyers and during the early part of 2020, um, these were people who were commercial litigators. They had sued some of the biggest corporations in the world and governments and won. And they just came into my life um, kind of serendipitously, essentially. But from the very beginning of 2020, I was telling my husband, you mark my words, this is going to get very bad. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple of people who have supported my work on the movie supported me founding a nonprofit health freedom defense fund to... Um, start fighting back. And so I started Health Freedom Defense Fund in the summer of 2020. And our objective is to do a few things. One is to educate people about their rights. Mm -hmm. Two is to help them advocate for them. So we provide all sorts of resources for people to help go to bat for themselves because um, you know we can't do everything and people need to sort of advocate for themselves. And three is to, um, to litigate when necessary. And so we, um, you know, I was anticipating that mandates were coming because of all the stuff. I won't go into it now, but all the different legislation that had been put in place in the last 20 years. 
And so we started doing all of our legal research in order to be ready. And by the time um, the mandate started unrolling, we were one of the first groups to actually file against the vaccine mandates. In fact, we sued together with a group called California Educators for Medical Freedom. We actually sued the, the Los Angeles Unified School District, challenging their um, mandate of the emergency use authorized shot in March. I think it was March 18th of 2021. And the next day they rescinded their mandate. Um, so, you know, this is, this is our work, but let me just tell you one other thing that's so important to me because everybody's getting exemptions. We're claiming religious exemptions, philosophical exemptions, all these other things and exemptions are fine, but they're not the solution because mm. The Declaration of Independence says that our rights come from our creator. It doesn't say that our rights to decide what we do with our body come from a government official or an employer or a university or a school. It doesn't say that. It says they come from our creator. As such, they can't be removed. And so HFDF, Health Freedom Defense Fund's longer term objective is to completely codify, so in law, and enshrined in the public consciousness, the idea that we and we alone get to dictate how we keep well, what we put into our bodies, that no one else has the right or the authority to, to coerce us, to mandate us, to do anything to us, to keep our job, to enter a business, um, to go to school. It's not right. And so that's our longer term goal. But we do all of these other things in the process to try and move the ball down the field to the point where we can get to a general appreciation for and a legal um, protection of our God-given right to bodily autonomy. It's a bit, you know, it's 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 a big one because a lot of people go, you know, there, there are many steps before they get to that big philosophical. But the most important thing is they should start with that and realize that that what is happening is being chipped away by what's in place right now. Leslie, let's talk about your wins because you, you won that California case and now you've just recently won the, the case against Nike. Explain yeah. that to the public because that's yeah. a big one too. Yeah. So we defeated LAUSD in that first case, but then our biggest case, the biggest win we've had is the federal travel mask mandate. I just have to mention that. Oh, you do. I forgot about that. Yeah. No worries. So we talking earlier before Nike. Yes. Yeah. Jeez. So the, the, the biggest claim to fame. So we, we, I mean, we, in March of 2021, we stopped the LAUSD EUA vaccine mandate. In the fall of 2021, we stopped the University of Chicago from denying religious exemptions and got a, we, we sued the university and they ended up backing down and granting religious exemptions for all the people that we were working with So and, and many others. Um, and then in um, the summer of 2021, July of 2021, we filed against the CDC and the Biden administration's travel mask mandate. And we won that in April of 2022. So everybody will remember. Well, that means everybody should say thank you for that. We don't have to wear masks on a plane or a train. Planes, trains, buses. Yeah. Anybody mm -hmm. who took COVID relief, all that stuff. Yeah. So that was stopped. I mean, we got, it was, that was one of the most joyous moments of my life, right? Hearing that we actually won, um, that the, uh, um, that the judge ruled that the 
CDC's order should be vacated immediately. And people literally were ripping off their masks in flight when the captains were coming on and saying that the mandate has been struck down. It's pretty exciting. We got so many videos and photos and stuff. I mean, it just made me so happy because I feel like it was a real turning point in COVID for people. It made people believe that we could win. It gave them inspiration. That is true. There are pivotal points in this last three years. I mean, we we saw the pivotal points of the oppression, and then we saw the pivotal points of the censorship, and then we saw the pivotal points of people losing their jobs and not having access to their 401ks and their Mm. bank accounts were frozen. Not just the churches and the grocery, you know, the churches and, and the gyms closing down. We, 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 we all felt that, but there was a lack of hopelessness for a lot of people. And so thank God, you know, you and your colleagues stepped up to the plate and really stuck it to people to get it reversed. Those, those are important wins. Yeah. What I'm so grateful. Our attorney, Brant Hathaway, I mean, he's just, he's a brilliant man. He's a brilliant researcher and he just did an absolutely fantastic job in my hat. Just, I just take my hat off to him. Um, we worked together on everything The the case was my idea, but, um, he, you know, he's a really, really fantastic attorney. And so I'm super grateful to have him on our team, but yeah, so other wins, I mean, so we had that happen in April of 20, um, 2022. And then since then we refiled, um, we sued LAUSD again, and that case is on appeal and we have oral arguments scheduled for, uh, September 14th in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what's happened in other cases is we have a case against Disney, which is proceeding very, very well for violating an employee's religious freedom. So under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And the big news that we've had in the last week or so is that we just, um, the court just denied Nike's motion to dismiss our case against Nike for violations of religious freedoms under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and also for battery because they forced an employee to get the shot against her will or lose her job. And so we just got that. um, We just heard that announcement last week. It's so fantastic. So that means now we get to go to litigation. We get to get discovery, which means we get to look at the internal communications of Nike executives. And their internal communications with external parties that possibly can lead to Washington, D.C. or Atlanta at the CDC. Exactly. Or with pharma or with big tech, you know. The train is coming, folks. The train is coming. And we get to depose them, too. So, I mean, this is fantastic. So this is really important because um, we're suing Nike for damages. And Um, we are supporting the plaintiffs and suing for damages because we want to send a message to all of the corporate world that you cannot just treat your employees as disposable and that you are not their parent. You are not in a position to tell them what to do with their bodies. You cannot violate their religious freedoms. And let's remember, Nike is this company that holds itself up as diverse and inclusive, and we honor everybody and all their differences. Really? Then why did you force these people? So um, does it does it does it bring you back to that moment when you were sitting in London and you're and you're listening to the CEO and how he was commodifying the people that may be taking his company's drug? Does it does it? I mean, do you have a sense of satisfaction now knowing no, I'm on the right side of the table taking on the corporations? 
A hundred percent. Well, first of all, just making the movie and getting that out there, the greater good and having mm -hmm. people start to watch it. And I'll tell you, the movie is more relevant today than it was when it first came out in 2011, because people now have a visceral appreciation for the lack of science, for the government intrusions, for the government manipulation of the science and the messaging and the government's dishonesty around vaccinations. And so now they really get it in a different way. So that really helped me to feel like I was helping. I mean, I've met thousands of people who have vaccine injured children. I've met, you know, tons and tons of adults who tell me, oh yeah, I got a flu shot and I got paralysis in my arm. I got a flu shot and I had this terrible reaction to it. I had this or that, right? I mean, there is nothing more inspiring than helping people who feel that they don't have a voice. And Health Freedom Defense Fund has given me um, an opportunity, an avenue to really speak truth to power in a way that I had never had before. And that is, I mean, the first lawsuit we filed, I was like ecstatic. I was so excited, you know, because it was so fantastic. The first lawsuit we filed, I think was the one for school teachers. And we're helping all these school teachers and employees of LAUSD who are not the best compensated people in the world, who feel like they don't have any power or any voice, and we're helping them. And immediately we get a reaction, which is that LAUSD backs down. How fabulous is that? How gratifying. I mean, it, I just, it, it is, it is, because, because you realize that you're having an impact in somebody's life, even if you never meet them. Totally, totally. And I mean, so yeah, so that's that was fantastic with that kind of beast. And then to be going after the corporate world, yes, this gives me great great satisfaction because it's outrageous what these American companies have done. I mean, do they have no appreciation for um, the ideals which underpin this great nation? Do they have no appreciation for the principles that we all embraced or that, you know, that our founders embraced? It's like, have they just cast them all to the wind? I, I mean, it's, it's outrageous. And when so to be able to push back. When you take a look at this, because, you know, I, I've covered human trafficking now almost for a quarter of a century. I've seen the commodification and and it's not just in the sex slave or the labor i've seen it on the internet i've seen it organ trafficking now medical trafficking at a at a level that i never thought i'd ever see because of covid do you do you look back because i i i often say to people that once you see how the game is played you can't unsee it somebody asked me i'm in tennessee because i'm on the road traveling right now and somebody just asked me, you know, what keeps you going? And I and I have said, I said last night, uh, so I was walking into you know, my friend's house. I said, because I know that someday I'm going to see the face of God and God's going to say to me, you knew what, when, and you did what? It's, it's you, you can't walk away from the fight. It's really, it's really difficult to walk away from the fight. But I often think when you have something as explosive as this, you then have the grifters, okay? And the grifters come in. And I've seen this in human trafficking. I saw it when I did the global investigation in the Catholic Church. You know, I've seen it in the NGO world. A lot of times the people come in and they're newbies to the game. They think that they're sophisticated, but they're not. They think they're seasoned and they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. They're not lawyers, okay? They're, they're people who, who think that oh, I've, found, I've found a cause, but they're not strategic. And I've often said to people, I'd rather be somebody who was strategic because it's a long-term game to play. If yeah. you really want to hold people accountable, which I put you into that category, you want to hold people accountable. 
Well, let me tell you something, Christine. It's, it's so interesting you say that because we have a five-year roadmap when we first started this. You're not going to go to try and get rid of all mandates right away because people just don't have an understanding or an appreciation for why that's the appropriate thing to do because they've been indoctrinated for decades. But over a period of years, as we expose more and more of the malfeasance, more and more of the dishonesty, I think people will have an appreciation for that and they will be ready for that. So the point is, we are very, very strategic about the different lawsuits that we do because we want to chip away at the narrative. We want to start creating good law. We want to use the successes in order to um, shift public perception on these things so that they understand that they are being misled, that mm-hmm. health agencies aren't necessarily honest, that um, some of these trade groups, AAP and AMA, so the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Medical Association. these and are the American not- Psychiatric Association in terms of the psychotropic drugs. Those totally. These, these are trade groups. Mm-hmm. These are trade groups. These are not pseudo-governmental organizations. They are trade groups. And you're taking their word for something. Would you take the coal industry's word for something related, you know, the coal industry's trade group, their word for something about the, you know, I don't know, coal emissions or something? You'd ask questions from an independent body. And Mm -hmm. these organizations, these trade groups take millions and millions from big pharma, um, the medical device manufacturers, all these different groups, millions of dollars. They are very, very beholden to the industry. They are spokespersons for the industry for the most part. And yeah, they're, they're, they're basically public relations associations for them. I mean, I didn't know. They're trade groups. Yeah. That's what a trade group is, right? They're, they're, doing, they're doing the work and they're putting it out there and they're claiming to be independent and they're claiming that this is well-sourced when in fact they're being paid as um, puppets. Yeah. So our objective with our lawsuits is we want to show Government is overstepping its bounds. You don't have to obey that. That's not right. They need to be pushed back. We want to show that, you know, your religious freedoms are yours. And now with Nike, this is so important. So we've won, um, there were three counts. We won two of the three, the two most important. One of them was this religious. You win. Explain that to the public. Pardon? Explain those two win, those two counts you won. So any, almost all defendants, especially the corporations just want to make a case go away when they're sued. Okay. It's the easiest thing. They don't want to go through discovery. They don't want to be deposed. They don't want to have to litigate. So they file a motion to dismiss. We, there were three different claims that we made one under the Americans with disabilities act, one under the civil rights act and one on battery. Okay. And we are suing for damages. We're helping these plaintiffs to sue for damages because we want to hit Nike where it hurts in the pocketbook because we believe that that will actually send a message to all of corporate America who've completely, um, you know, trodden on everyone's uh, rights and freedoms over the last few years that they can't do that. You can't treat them as disposable. They're not commodities. Mm-hmm. You can't treat their rights as um, your right to deny. You can't do that. And so um, one of the claims was under the ADA. That one was dismissed. That was the least important one. And we will revisit that one. But the two that were most important survived. And that was, one of them was this religious exemption and a religious accommodation under the Civil Rights Act, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And the other was battery. That's really important because that has some punitive potential to it. 
Yes. Uh, and and I and I, I applaud you for doing that. I think I think that that's that, that that's that's good. That's yeah. a good and it's a good win in the court. Well, it's punitive. The religious is punitive as well. Okay, so yeah, but the battery was- the battery is something because a lot of people when you get to coercion, intimidation, forcefulness, um, scared to death of losing your job. I mean, if you're a single parent, if you're, you're, you're it just, I mean, it, it just, it, it's, 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 it's like having your bank accounts frozen, having your 401ks frozen. Yeah. It, well, this, this young woman was the primary breadwinner. She might've been the sole breadwinner for her family, a couple of young mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. Nike's policy said that the ramifications of not taking the shot included termination up to, so you were basically, if you didn't take the shot, you would face punishment up to and including termination. So, you know, I, I always, Leslie, and and I went to business school at Georgetown. So, you know, I, I wasn't at Goldman Sachs, but I always, when I've done these investigations, I always say to myself, I want to meet the six clowns that sit at the table that make these decisions for corporate policy that think that they're going to get away with it. And I want to meet the two lawyers out of the six who told those other four people, corporate (laughs) leaders, that they could get away with it because they can't, they're basically saying, Oh, we, we can have a slush fund and we can it, we can put in it as a you know line item budget. Not now. Well, here's Not the thing. Now. They it's huge. They think they can get away with it. And in a lot of times they do, because you know why? Because there's no one there helping the little guy. And that's one of the reasons that I started Health Freedom Defense Fund was because I wanted to help people who otherwise felt powerless and voiceless. And so we're helping these people with some of the best attorneys on the planet. And I think Nike is in trouble because the Supreme Court has just ruled twice mm. in two separate cases that religious freedoms must be upheld by employers and that the only way that they can refuse a religious accommodation is if it's a um, significant or a, no, a substantial increased cost to operate in the business. It would have cost Nike nothing to accommodate these people's exemptions. So they denied this one woman repeatedly her religious exemption. And she finally because she thought she was going to lose her job, went and got the shot. How's she doing? She, she like, suffered a severe autoimmune reaction to the shot mm-hmm. and she had to quit quit Nike. She had to stop working at Nike because of it. So basically- is it, is the, it, this, Was she able to get disability? I'm not sure where that stands. I think she was pursuing that. I'm not sure if that's continuing or not. Um, um, that's a separate claim. Okay. It's separate from this case. But what- What's so important about this is that she was coerced. Nike actually said in oral argument to the judge, you know, it was just a policy. It wasn't really a threat. It was just a policy. We didn't really mean it. Well, <laughs> and the judge stated if you if you can't have your job unless you get it, that that's that that is corporate coercion. Exactly. And the thing is, we know from case law, there was a case several decades ago that found in which the Supreme Court ruled that prisoners could refuse um, psychiatric medications that were unwanted prisoners. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that it wasn't okay. And that it was a liberty interest that you could not be forced to inject something into you to be touched. So we have the right to not be touched unwanted. And Nike essentially forced this woman to be touched and it resulted in grave harm to her. This is the battery claim and this is going forward. And so I think this is very positive. And 
I mean, potentially monumental because not only has the Supreme Court ruled that the religious exemptions must be accommodated, and they've actually, there's already been another court case where a hospital was awarded, <clears throat> was fined, I think, $10 million. Isn't that what it was? Is that the, is that the one that was in Chicago? Yes, yes. <clears throat> and um, it was a large chunk of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was for the religious piece. But then you've got the battery charge. Now, this person is doing much better, but she suffered a really, really bad reaction. She's been able to heal a tremendous amount of it. That's battery. What about the thousands, if not millions, of other people across the country who took these shots because they were coerced? Well, let's, let's, let's talk about this. Open the floodgates, right? I was just going to say, this is, a, this is a floodgate, and that's why I wanted to have you on today so people understand globally, okay? The trains are coming, folks, all right? The floodgate on this uh, is, now, it may change, you know, <laughs> this is where, this is where it, to me, it gets kind of fun from the legal strategy because you, you have this in the United States. You have this for an international corporation, even though it's based here in the United States. At the same time, we have U.S. pharmaceutical companies who have distributed overseas. And we know that some of their contract negotiations are draconian and very much in the interest of corporate self-protection. They wanted the same uh, no immunity policy here overseas when they distributed, when Pfizer distributed to Rwanda and Israel, when Moderna distributed to Australia, everybody wanted to have this no liability law apply. And in some cases, they wanted to have some collateral in case they found something. And if they, in, even in shipment, if they ordered the, the shots in May and they found a cure for COVID in August before the shots arrived, they wanted the the foreign governments to still pay for those shots. I mean, we know the game here in terms of how they're playing it on the corporate side. But what your case does at Nike is it opens it up because these are U.S. pharmaceuticals and the communications between the pharmaceuticals, the agencies, the governments, the coercion and collusion with the tech to force people to get them. And then the conversations at the board level or maybe not just the leadership where they make the decision that they're going to have mandated shots for the hospital staff or they have to have it at the firehouse or the police force or the schools, I mean, or the small businesses. I mean, th- this is huge. What huge. about what are the, What about an NFL superstar that's right. who's young and collapses and now can't earn tens of millions? Right. What about all these people? There was just another athlete. Did you hear about this young man? Um, Caleb White. He's a senior. He was a senior in high school, 17 years old, dead today. It's during crazy. practice, during practice. And re- and we don't know for sure that he got the shot. And let's be honest, sometimes athletes die. It's true. It happens. But we have seen hundreds. It's a natural, it's a natural question to ask now, especially, yes, especially you know, in light of, and another man coming out of finance, Ed Dowd, who wrote uh, Causes Unknown that came out some time ago. Yeah. I remember talking to, to Ed about this because I, I appreciated the fact, I mean, I look at this differently, not through the eyes of a science reporter or a medical reporter. I look at the eyes through as a corruption reporter. And Ed looked at it like you did. You, you had your epiphany moment. Mm. 
But then the more you, you got into it, and Ed looked at it as somebody who had been at BlackRock in finance, you know, who looks at actualities and trends around the corner so that he can make the right judgments for his clients. And it's I think that the more the more people that we have in this arena to expose this level of corruption, to set the record straight, to hold people accountable, to expose all of the inequities and the lies and the crimes that have been committed over this nonsense. I think that the more talent we have at the table, the different type of talent, I think I think that this is a very winnable war. I really I really believe in that and congratulations on the Nike because it is a floodgate decision by the by yeah. the court. I think it's huge. I think it's very promising for our rights and for corporate America being smacked and realizing that they can't one dispose of their employees and two disregard their needs and their beliefs. So I think it's 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 potentially monumental. I'm very, very excited about it. Well, and Leslie, can I, can I tell you, people can actually donate to that. You can donate to you can donate to Health Freedom Defense Fund in general by going to healthfreedomdefense.org, but you can also donate specifically to individual cases if you want. So, if you want to help the Nike people or you want to help the teachers, we're suing LAUSD again. Um, you just click. You go to our website and you click on Legal Corner, and at the top of each page, there's an opportunity to actually donate specifically to that litigation effort. And any money that comes in through that link goes specifically to that litigation effort. So, you know, if people want to do that, they can. That's Same great. thing for our Disney case. That's great. That's great, Leslie. And so where do they find you on social media? Um, well, I have my own Twitter account. Um, but if you go to our website, healthfreedomdefense.org, you can see where we're most, you can see all of our social media um, platforms. There's links at the bottom of the page. We're most active on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Great. Leslie Manukian, thank you very much. Please come back. I know I, I, I've, I've interviewed you longer than I promised that I would, but it, but it was just too good to let you go too early. Uh, thank you very much and have a great vacation. Have a, thank have you so fun. much. So great to see you, Christine. I appreciate it. Well, we, we love having you anytime. Thank you. Thank, and thank you for your team, for everything you're doing, because I know it affects everybody across the world. Yeah, thank you very much. It's, it's, um, I feel blessed to be able to do it. Well, you are blessed, okay? And people need to pray for you and your team that you succeed because you, you are winning step by step on this and it's, it is affecting millions of people. It's not like one lawsuit when it's one person. You are doing things that have a trajectory that help people across the globe. So thank you and God bless you.